0: 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. We looked first of all at what exactly is a member, it's your body, but Paul is referring to the corrupt desires of our body. The old man of Ephesians 4.22, which is corrupt according to deceitful desires. So that involves deeds and speech, but God calls on us to get to the core of the problem. It's our deceitful desires, the deceitful desires of the old man that we still struggle against. So we looked at the sins of sensuality that need to be killed. Not only bodily sins, but our thought life. And then we looked at the sin of covetousness, which is really a root sin to all of these sins. It's idolatry because it seeks to replace God. And His supremacy was some lesser false god which we expect to deliver on what God alone can deliver, which is fulfillment, significance, meaning, purpose, and to be satisfied spiritually and in our souls with all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. Now the two other sins we look to are the sins of sinful anger and the sin of prejudice, being prejudiced. And then we'll look at what Paul says, what God expects of us to identify sins of the heart, our idols, and then how to replace them. What it is that we're replacing when we put off this old man and his tendencies and put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ who created him. What would that mean for us? First, the sins of anger. Verse 8, But now ye also put off all these Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, and lying, lie not one to another. Seeing you have put off the old man with his deeds, and the old man has desires. And so, let's look at these sinful tendencies. It's very clear, as many say, we're in a culture war in America. A culture war is a war between social groups who are vying for dominance, through pushing forward with an agenda that is rooted in their values, beliefs, and practices. We see that played out politically. We see that played out in socialism and conservatism, in abortion, in free speech, in the sexual revolution, in school curricula, and many other ways. It's said that the culture war always precedes or come before shooting. Now we've seen literal shooting in our culture with weapons that have bullets, but the primary weapon in cultural wars is what? The weapon of words. The war of words. In the church of Jesus Christ, the world should be able to see the war of words is fading. It's being killed. We're struggling against words that destroy, that tear down, that belittle, that are not useful and that are not God-honoring. Of course we have the tendency of the old man to say things that are damaging, that are self-serving, that gratify the lust of the old man. But God is calling on us to put to death, to mortify the root sin and causes of the speech that tears down relationships in marriage and family and in church. So let's look at these in pairs. And since we talk about culture wars, we'll look at them in the terminology of warfare. First, anger and wrath. Anger is orgay anger, which is a, a chronic, settled condition that abides under the surface. We'll call that Cold War anger. You remember the Cold War, 1940s to the 1990s, between America and Russia? Technically, they were at peace. But under the surface, they were both vying with their allies for world dominance with an aggressive arms race. That's much like Cold War war, anger. Technically, I'm okay. Is something wrong? No, 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 I'm fine. I'm okay. But Under the surface, the old man is seething, he's displeased, and he's vying for dominance in the relationship. He wants his lust gratified, and you wife, you husband, you church member are not giving him what he wants, so he's cold and indifferent and he won't talk to you, and she won't talk to you, because his aim is to dominate the relationship by punishing you. That's Cold War anger. This anger, perhaps, is the most dangerous, because on the surface, it looks really pious. It's not so easily visible as thumos anger or wrath. Now this Greek word means like the pot of water that's starting to boil, everything looks good, the lid is on the top, and then all of a sudden the the bubbles start flaming up, it shoots up because the heat gets so hot and it boils over, and then you turn the heat down and it's over. It's done. That's an illustration of Thumas' anger. It is a quick rise in heat that is explosive. We'll call that nuclear war anger. It's like an atomic bomb. And things happen, and then it's over. Now this person usually gets the bad rap in the family in the church because everybody can see that's wrong. And usually a Cold War angry person is going to point to Thumos and say, See what he did? You see how bad she is? You see how bad they are? Just exploding while Cold War anger is just as bad and perhaps more dangerous because it's not so readily visible. Now, Thumas' anger is not better by any means, but we need to understand they are both alike sinful and wrong in the eyes of God. And Thumas' anger is more likely to say things with a war of words that is going to be openly tearing down because the old man desires is not happy with how you treated me, what you said to me, how you interrupted my schedule, how you got in the way of me. And so the focus of every one of these passions and deeds is always me and has very little if nothing to do with God and His glory at all. So God says put together the anger that's kind of chronic and settling and it's abiding, call that cold war, and to put to death. Thumas anger, the anger that is explosive, and everybody sees both alike wrong. Both need to be repented of and killed. The next pair we see in verse 8 is malice and blasphemy. Malice is probably more associated with Cold War anger because it wants something not too bad, but bad to happen to the person. We'll call that sniper warfare where the sniper from a concealed location uses a long-range rifle to pick off his opponent with sure accuracy. Malice, where you want something. I hope he preaches a bad sermon. I just hope he falls flat. I'm so angry with him. I hope her butt cake her, uh, her cake that she made just sinks because she always makes the cake I want to, so I hope it just falls apart and everybody kind of snickers under their breath. That'll show her malice from the concealed location of the heart that wants to pick off its opponent. Now, what is the favorite weapon of a sniper? Well, in this case, it's not a rifle. It's blasphemy, which means slander, gossip, and speech that is designed to harm someone. That's the favorite weapon of a sniper. From a concealed location where the target doesn't know, you begin to spread things that are not true. It's so deceptive that sometimes we hear things that are not true, that are half-truths and half-lies, that defame someone that we're angry at, that we're malice towards. We don't correct it, we sort of let it hang there. Because we know that that half-truth is going to bring ill repute against the person that we are malice toward. So rather than correct that untruth, we just let it hang. We let it stay there. We say, well, I didn't say anything bad about them, but you sure didn't correct it either, right? Why? Malice. Paul tells us in Titus 3, the old man was universally at all times consumed with malice and envy. Because of the idols of lust and pleasure. So there's the old man once again. What's his aim? Self-gratification. How does he use his relationships? To get self-gratification. What happens when the relationship won't comply? Whatever the relationship? Malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. And that hatred in part is what? Blasphemy. Slander, gossip. Beloved, the danger of this kind of anger, this kind of malice, is that once the words are said, they never can be recalled. And the impact, you can't go to every person on the internet who got that information and recall it and say, I've sinned. It wasn't true. The impact remains. So we have cold war nuclear, we have sniper, and we have blasphemies, misinformation warfare. Now we get all upset about misinformation, which the people calling for misinformation are misinformed, but then we start using misinformation called slander, gossip, innuendo, half-truth, shading the truth all the ways. That we just want a little harm, not too much. Why? Because we're displeased. We're either chronically angry or we blow up. And these are the effects. The next pair Paul will give us after malice and blasphemy is filthy communication out of your mouth and lying. Filthy communication. We'll call that chemical warfare. Chemical warfare is using toxic agents in chemicals to destroy. Filthy communication is toxic language. Toxic language. Now that includes two things. First, it would include obscene, profane language. What we call curse words. The younger generation, the one question that is asked over and over by Christians, is, what's wrong with cursing? It's so prevalent. It doesn't hurt anybody. Well, Proverbs 8.13 tells us what's wrong with cursing. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogancy, the evil way, and the froward mouth. Froward means perverted mouth, lips, speech. When something is perverted, it is altered from its original purpose and original design. When justice is perverted, it is altered from its original purpose or design. When marriage is perverted or sexuality is perverted, there's an altercation from the original design that God gave it to be used for. When speech is perverted, we alter God's gift to humanity, which is speech designed to praise God, worship God speak truth, encourage, exhort, correct. All the designs of communication that speak redemptively out of Scripture are now altered for old man's self-serving purposes. Cursing, swearing, lying, gossip, slander. All the speech of the old man that is altering God's good gift to humanity, the ability to communicate. God is the great communicator. He's communicated through His Word. He communicates through creation. And now He's given Christians the redemptive gift of communication so we communicate the Gospel, we communicate God's Word, and we're using our speech to fulfill God's redemptive purposes as He gathers in the family of God into local assemblies called churches. When we speak curse words, we are speaking them to serve the selfish gratification of the old man. Sometimes it can be to look cool in front of our peers. To gain the acceptance of peers. When everyone around you, young man and young woman, is doing nothing but cursing. Maybe you're in the workplace. Maybe you're in the school system. Maybe you're in places where all you hear is cursing and the temptation and the pressure is to conform so that you would be liked and accepted. Our greatest desire should be that we are accepted of God and we want to please Him with our speech and not please the world whose language is, through the war of words, cursing. I have yet to meet a person who curses as a regular part of their life who's not an angry person. You just mark that down. Typically, and that may not be 100% of the time, most of the time a person who curses on a regular basis is a very angry person. And they're using their cursing to intimidate or to get people to shape up as they want them to be or to show themselves to be the perception of strength In all these ways, it's designed to gratify the corrupt desires of the old man, which God says, I want you to put him to death. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. But filthy communication also includes that which is abusive and not helpful. It's not useful. See, the standard for the Christian's speech is not just true or false. Well, I just said what was true. I gave them a piece of my mind. I said what is true. The standard is also, was it helpful and loving? Was it damaging and unhelpful and unuseful? And that's a test you can take on your words. Say, I don't cuss. Yeah, I don't have that problem. But are your words the kind of words that are not helpful to your children? Right? They're not helpful to your spouse. They're not helpful to brothers and sisters in Christ. And if they're not, there's only one answer. It's because the members in our body, the old man wants something out of the relationship which he should be expecting, she should be expecting from God alone. Meaning, purpose, fulfillment in God alone, which will then shape our speech. No, our speech will not automatically be perfect. But if you're killing filthy communication, that means you're recognizing it when it happens and repenting and replacing that root idol. Why did those curse words fly? There's a reason, there's a cause, and you're putting a new man tendency in its place. If that doesn't happen, if you just stop cursing, you know what that means? If you're a thief and you're not stealing today, you know what that means? You're just a thief between jobs until the new man is being renewed in righteousness and all true holiness, Paul would say in Ephesians 4. So this is chemical warfare, and what goes along with it is lying. Much of our communication, our filthy communication, not just cursing, but what is unuseful, what is sin, is lying lips are an abomination to God. We would call lying lips espionage warfare. That's where under the pretense of falsehood, the spy for the sake of country seeks to protect and to advance country. Here, lying seeks to protect and advance one person, the old man. And so lying is used as a means of protection, as a means to get ahead rather than what? Trusting in the living God to protect you, trusting in the living God to advance you in whatever way God seems to be, trusting in Christ who is your rock, your deliverer, your fortress, your shield, your rescuer, your redeemer. When we as members of the body of Christ begin to speak redemptively, we are joining God in His redemptive purposes in the way we speak to one another to build up the body of Christ rather than to tear it down. None of us here would knowingly say, yes, my, my sole purpose is to work against God's redemptive purpose by tearing as many relationships apart as I can. No one would say that. But yet so often, if we're not killing these sinful tendencies, then the old man is cultivating them. Sometimes in very subtle manipulative ways. So we're to put away lying, seeing we have put off the old man. See, each of these passions, each of these sins are related to the old man, which is dead. You are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. So you're killing what is dead because the old man has lost his dominion and his power. And the new man in Christ now has the power to put him to death. So somebody says, Well, I get that about sinful anger, but all anger is not sinful. How would I know? Some anger is righteous because Paul says so. Let's talk about that a minute. Ephesians 4:22, 4.26 rather, Paul would say this. Be angry, but don't sin. Alright, so that right there tells us there's a way you can have displeasure and not sin. Now, if you are angry and you don't sin, that would be right anger or righteous anger, what the Scripture calls righteous indignation. This is the kind of anger that God has 24-7. He is angry with the wicked every day. Is He unrighteous? Is that sinful anger? No, but why not? Because everything God does, He has an unswerving commitment to one thing alone, His glory. Whenever God acts for the supremacy of His name, He's right. And when He's angry against sin and against wickedness, He's right because sin is against the supremacy of His righteous name. God doesn't look at a book. God doesn't look at His Bible and say, I'm angry, am I right? No, He is righteous in whatever He does. So long as what He does, in salvation, providence, creation, and in everything, He's doing it for the supremacy of His name. Now, when is your anger right? For the same reason. Now, Scripture guides us to tell us when we're acting for the supremacy of our own gratification and name, and whether we're acting angrily for the supremacy of God's name. So how will we know? When the sun does not go down on your wrath. Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Because a Cold War angry person will perpetually go hours and days before he or she communicates. Because I'm angry. Why are you so angry? Because of the way she talked to me or the way they acted toward me, you will find in Cold War anger, unrighteous anger, the object is always me. And God will not be found in any of my thoughts. And that's why I'm not going to communicate and be reconciled. Now, these are not all inclusive. You may say, well, explosive anger doesn't let the sun go down on his wrath, but it's still sinful anger. And we'll see why in just a minute. So the first test, if you've let the sun go down on your wrath, it's probably unrighteous anger. Now there are circumstances that may prevent you from being reconciled right away. Right? So God is not saying if you go one day and there was some circumstance that prevented it physically and location-wise or some other reason... But it's when the old man is bent on, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to punish you. Oh, no, nothing's wrong with me. No, I'm fine. And then all of a sudden, the Cold War angry person turns all the tables against the other person in manipulation and domination. So when the sun goes, doesn't go down upon your wrath, and when you don't give place to the devil... To give place to the devil means we're giving an opportunity, an occasion for the devil to come in our relationships and divide them. All kinds of unrighteous anger does that, right? He divides the relationship. He produces a gap. He divorces people. Not just the human legally kind of divorce, which is unbiblical, But the separation kind where relationships are now severed. The devil seeks to put a division in Christian relationships where they let days and days go down upon their wrath and anger because that produces bitterness and bitterness causes roots and roots are hard to dig up. That's what he's after. Verse 29 gives us the next test. Again, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good. When is my anger unrighteous? When that happens. When filthy communication or communication that's not good. How do we define that? The word good there means useful. If my language is not useful toward the other person, if it has no benefit toward them, then my anger is unrighteous. Indicating to be displeased can be right. There is displeasure. There is sin here. There is wrong here. There is injustice. We should be displeased. But if the language then is filthy, cursing, or if it's filthy, not useful, then it's unrighteous anger. Now wait a minute. That, that's, how do I know when it's not useful? When it's not good to the use. The word use there means to the need Of edifying. Now we're getting sharper focus as to the kind of language when there's a displeasure over something wrong that then seeks to do what? Edify the person who did the wrong rather than what? Destroy. I'm not talking to you. I'm throwing out obscenities. That's not right. What is righteous anger? Now I'm moving toward that child, toward that person towards that spouse, towards that church member, to build them up. You say, well, I I knew it. It just gets all back to, oh, you're a good person, and I'm going to build you up. No, it ministers grace to the hearers. Ephesians 4.29. Grace. We are ambassadors and ministers of the grace of God to serve grace to the hearers. Now, what kind of grace does your child need the grace of correction and instruction, and yes, the grace of discipline. If your anger is moving you to yell out things that are destructive or to say, I'm not talking to you, then it's not ministering grace, it's serving the old man. And it's not edifying that person and building them up where into Christ because we're just letting them go on maybe in a sinful habit. That doesn't mean every time you correct that it's always received, but when peace is ruling your heart, there's a displeasure because this is sin against God and it's not good for that person to continue to speak that way and to live that way and to do that thing. Therefore, you speak what is needful, designed to edify and minister grace. And when grace is ministered, you've been useful, helpful, and you've Spoken redemptively. Redemptively. Now if we could all go around the room and tell about all the times we have spoken unredemptively, we'd be here all day, right? God remembers that we're but dust and He pities us like a father. He's given us the resources of being united to Christ so that we can now move out fighting the battle against the sinful tendencies that we have when we are displeased unrighteously, and that unrighteous anger comes out in words that produce wars, severing, grief, heartache, hardship, and tears down relationships. Isn't it a much better word to be upbuilding relationships? And the only way to upbuild in Christ is we need to know our blind spots when we've sinned and to graciously, redemptively speak as ambassadors of Christ because it's not about me. Yeah, I may have been harmed. You know God was over that. Yeah, you may have really hurt me what you said. Do you know God is over that to bring about His redemptive purpose through your addressing the person that draws them back into Christ through faith and repentance? What a glorious picture. This is what the church is to be. And when the world looks in and sees, they ought to see people who, yes, say some wrong things and have conflict, but they see them reconciling and speaking the truth in love and are growing up into Him, even the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body is edifying one another in love through every joint supplying being compacted and every joint in band speaking and ministering. We minister grace. All right, let's, we're going to skip over verse 10. We'll get back to that in a minute. Now let's look at prejudice. This is the next thing Paul wants us to kill as he leads us into then verse 12 and start putting on the new man. So he says this, Where? There is neither. Where? Where the new man is in verse 10. Where is that new man? In the church of Jesus Christ. In the church there should neither be what? Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, the elect of God. Prejudice. Prejudice is an opinion or feeling that you have toward people solely on the basis that they're part of a different group than you are. What's that feeling and what are those groups? Well, the feeling, of course, is that of supremacy. I am more excellent because I'm in this group than you are because you're in that group. Isn't that what we see in the world? Supremacy and elitism and excellency because I'm in this group and you're not. In the church, that's Gone. What kind of groups, Paul? Well, here's eight of them Greek nor Jew. National supremacy. I do not say that America does not have a more supreme form of government. At least she has. She does. But being born in America does not make you more excellent to God than being born in China or Russia or Iran or Afghanistan or Iraq. You are not more excellent simply because you're an American. Although I concede a republic form of government is superior than despotism and tyranny. Amen to that. But your being born here does not make you supreme. Nor being born in Israel as a Jew makes them more supreme than a Greek, which Greek people thought they were the more cultured supreme people. You are born where you're born because God has set the bounds of our habitations and the very borders and geography of all nations, Acts 17, have been set by God. And if they move and change, that's of God. You're born exactly where he wants you to be born. You are assigned to no supremacy or excellence by being an American. That's important for the church. Circumcision or uncircumcision. Religious supremacy. Now, granted, at the time of this writing, to be a Jew, even though that was the religion of God, was no better to be an uncircumcised. That was obliterated. Well, wasn't the Jewish religion better than all others? Isn't Christianity better than all others? Yes, indeed. But why? Because of the supremacy of Christ over all other would-be false gods. And they are all false. There's only one God and one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ. But it's not because you're a follower of Christ. You have no more excellency or no more supremacy. In fact, it ought to make you the most humble of all people. To be part of a church of God that God has sovereignly designed for you to be part of. It should, you should be looking up at people, not down at people. So religious supremacy. Sometimes within Christianity we think I'm part of this denomination, I'm part of that group, so that gives me the leg up. Now one group may have a little more truth than the other, but there is no more supremacy with God if they're truly God's children and truly God's church. The next group, the next pair is barbarian, Scythian. Barbarian is not a derogatory term. Paul used it in the book of Acts. He used it in Romans 1 where he says, I'm in debt both to the Greeks and the barbarians. Now he wouldn't have risked offending a people right there in the opening of Romans by saying, you barbarous people. It meant someone that spoke another language. See, if you weren't Greek, you were a non-Greek, which means you didn't speak the predominant language of that day, which was Greek. You were just a foreigner. We would call these two groups the uncultured groups, cultural distinctions. You know, uncultured people, they're the people that maybe don't have the education you do, have not been exposed to the arts, and just kind of seen as lesser Barbarians. See, if you didn't speak Greek, you don't have the advantage, so they would think. Made you lesser. Paul said, not in the church. Scythian, the nomads to the north of Palestine, up in Russia. These were the aristocrats that were slave owners. Which leads to the next one. Bond or free. Free. In the church at the time of the writings of the New Testament, you had some slave owners who had slaves bond, and you had some free people. Culture distinctions, not in the church. Bond or free status. I'm a free man, I'm a slave man. I'm a poor man, I'm a rich man. I'm white, I'm black. I'm from this country or that country. Now, these distinctives have not been obliterated to the such that we say, I'm no longer a white man, no longer a black man. I'm no longer American, no longer Russian. Those things are still reality. What has changed? In the church, Christ is all and Christ in all. So let me give you the dangers of prejudice in the church. Dangers of being prejudiced. First, it's a denial of your identity in Christ. If you seek your identity in being part of a certain nation, you're looking to that identity to give you meaning, purpose, significance, and fulfillment. There's a reason why your six-year-old daughter says, Daddy, I want to be a princess when I grow up. What she means is, if I can be a princess, that will give me meaning, significance, fulfillment. If I can be identified and known as a princess, there's a reason your six-year-old son says, I want to be Batman. If I can be Batman, pick your hero, I'll have meaning, significance, purpose, fulfillment. Which can only come from where? Christ in all. Christ is all. When we are prejudiced, we are looking to our identity, our education, our status, our nationalism, for our identity. And Paul says, that's wiped away. Yes, you may retain some of your identities. I am a male. You are a female. I was born here. I work here. But your meaning and significance comes from Christ alone. And that puts us all together. And we'll start eliminating prejudice thinking. Next, prejudice is the denial of justification by faith. Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, upon all and unto all that believe. Why? Because there is no distinction or difference. The word difference in the Greek means there is no excellence. In one people group, one person over another. If we are all equally unworthy, and we are, then we all have equal access to the love of God. What do I mean by that? There is nothing about your human distinctiveness or identity that prevents God from loving you. Why? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. And there's nothing about your identity, humanly speaking, that merits your being loved by God. In fact, it's in spite of the fact that you're white or black, or you're an American or a Russian. It's in spite of that. Prejudice denies the gospel, denies justification by faith because it says, the reason we're in the church is, well, because of this human distinctive that we have. That's because we were born in America. We know that's where the church is, right? Wrong. Paul rebuked Peter in Galatians 2 because of this very thing. Before the Jews came, the circumcision party, you know, the excellent party, he ate with the Gentiles, which means acceptance and fellowship and brotherhood. But when they came, he separated. He withdrew, fearing the Jews. When Paul confronted him, he said, Peter... You're not fulfilling EEO policy. You're going to get us in trouble with the, judgment. You're pre- with the government. You're prejudiced. No, he said, you're not walking in sync with the gospel of justification by faith. He was compelling the Jews to do what? Or the Gentiles to become Jews. His communication was, if you want to receive the love of God, you've got to become a Jew. Because we all know Jews are superior to everybody else. And so Paul then goes out into a treatise on justification by faith. Because Peter in that moment, his prejudice was denying the fact that Jew or Gentile, there's no difference between us. There's nothing that recommends me to the love of God and there's no barrier that prevents God loving me according to where I live, my status, my culture, my education, my lack of education, my poverty, my wealth, or anything. And so Paul rebukes Peter to his face. Peter's prejudice. It denies the gospel of justification by faith. It denies the purpose of God in the church. What is God doing in the church? What does election mean in predestination? It means God is gathering a family according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy without blame before Him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of of children. We should never think of election and predestination as individualistic alone. You know why? God doesn't. He never thinks of you as an individual believer chosen by Him as the individual. He always thinks of you as the individual in a family. Adopted sons and daughters. What is He doing in this family? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. He's broken down the middle wall, of partition between us because of human distinctions. And now he's gathering in one church, black and white, Chinese and Russian and American, poor and rich, uneducated, educated. When we are prejudiced, we are working against the very purpose of God in redemption to gather a diverse multitude from all nations, tongues, and tribes because we think something about our identity is more excellent. We are working against the purpose of God when we are prejudiced in the church on any basis of something we can't control. The only thing that excludes people from the family of God is what? Open, unrepentant sin. It's got nothing to do with where you live or your status or the nation you're part of. Prejudice hardens our arteries of compassion toward the people we're prejudiced against. Jonah chapter 4. He's angry. Tell me why he's angry. He ran from the command to preach, went down to Tarshish, bought a ticket, got on a boat and sailed away. Somebody says he was running from preaching. He was not. He tells us why he was running. In chapter 4 he said, Isn't this what I told you, God, when I ran from you, when I fled from you? I knew you were a God, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, of great compassion, and ready to pardon Him. Those that repent. Jonah's saying, I knew that when I preached, if the Ninevites so much as looked like they were going to repent, if they leaned in the direction of repentance, you weren't going to wipe them out. Therefore, I ran. And now I'm so angry, I just want you to take my life right now. What's his problem? He's prejudiced. Now, the Ninevites were a violent people, but the Assyrians, which are who the Ninevites are correcting with, guess what was happening? They were gaining world dominance. What's Jonah's concern? The status, the power of Israel. If you spare this nation, what will become of our national status? Jonah is angry. He's full of wrath say, but they were a violent people, yes. And what happens if they repent? They stop being a violent people. Is there anything better for a nation than God to spare them upon their repentance? Jonah doesn't want them to repent. Jonah doesn't want God to be gracious because Jonah is prejudiced. And his arteries of compassion have been hardened. Because he thinks to be a Jew is superior than being a Ninevite. Is it? There's nothing about a Ninevite that prevented God from loving them. And there was nothing about a Ninevite that recommended God's love because God's love is sovereign. It's free. He wills it upon whomsoever. He wills according to his good pleasure and nothing distinctive in the human being jonah is prejudice and if we're prejudice the world just sees in the church the same kind of divisions the same kind of problems and they see a church that has no compassion because we judge who will be compassionate too on the basis of well their distinctives who they are what are the implications for evangelism we only evangelize people that are like us That would be terrible. We're only going to evangelize people that are worthy of God's love, and that's anybody that's just like me and likes what I like and does what I like. Certainly not Ninevites. Oh, may God bless us. In the church, Christ is all in, in all, no matter what the human distinctive, and we go out to the gospel to all because nothing in human distinctives is a barrier to God's love. We prove that and show that because we bring the gospel to every human being. Now, how do we kill? Let's use a few moments. <clears throat> how are we going to kill all these sins which are rooted in covetousness? Covetousness is idolatry. It's the root sin. Well, James gives us help. In James 4 when he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not you kill or envy. Desire to have, you cannot obtain, you fight in war. If you have not because you ask not, you ask. You receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it. What's the antecedent to it? It's not any particular object, it's a realm where this is present. Lust. You consume it upon your lust. So here's some questions we must ask ourselves to identify the idols. What consumes most of your thoughts when you don't have to think about anything else? You don't have to think about work. You don't have to think about the project. You don't have to think about anything else. What consumes your thoughts? That could be the idol of choice. Because if that idol is going to bring fulfillment to your lust, you're consumed with that idol. You're consumed. Because that idol must bring me the pleasure that I'm after. That's just an indicator for all of us. What am I most thinking about when I don't have to think about anything else that could be your idol next? What consumes most of your money? An idol requires money, does it not? You've got to protect it. You've got to sustain it. You've got to buy things for it. You've got to to keep it going. When you are using your money to spend it on things you don't have to spend it on, like taxes and food, and it's totally discretionary spending, what most consumes your checkbook, your bank account, or your online spending. That could be your idol. I do not say it is necessarily so, because you have to determine that, and I do too. Idols require money. And if idols are going to deliver on my expectation for happiness, then I've got to purchase it maybe. Spend a lot of money on it? Third question, what consumes my time? And that relates to the first two. What do I do when I don't have to do anything else? Well, it's love my neighbor. It's serve my wife. It's help my husband. It's train my children. It's serve the church. Or, what is it? That could be your idol. I'm very cautious to use the word could be, so I'm not... (laughs) God wants you to ask that question. Does God consume any of your time? Does God consume any of your thoughts? And does the kingdom consume money in your life? Any of it. Fourthly, what consumes you with fear or anxiety? Consumes is a key word. None of us can avoid fear or having anxious thoughts or feeling anxious. The Bible makes it clear Anxiety and fear is something we have to struggle against. So nobody here says, I never, I'm i not afraid of anything. Oh, yes, you are. But what consumes you with fear and anxiety? When you put your finger on that, that could be your idol. Is it failure? Is it not success? Is it not approval? Whatever it is, that could be an idol. And then lastly, what consumes you with frustration, disappointment, or anger? That old man, corrupt desires, what does he want that's causing him to war, fight, be angry, malicious, filthy words, lying? All of those passions and deeds are rooted in my frustrations, I'm disappointed, which can turn into a form of anger, I'm disappointed with you. You didn't give me what I want, so now I'm bitter at you, I'm resentful, I'm upset with you, I'm malicious towards you. Why? You did not become the source of the it that I want to consume on my lust. And God says, you adulterers, and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is in me with God? And calls on us to what? Repent and fight. But we have to know the idols. So ask those questions. And lastly, What do we do? What do we replace? So to put off the old man means to recognize the idols, but now we're putting on the new man which was renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Give me just a few moments here. The image of him that created him is the image of Christ, the glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. He's the image of the invisible God. So to put on this new man is not to put on a list of do's and don'ts, it's not to put on rules and regulations, it's to put on Christ. It is to be joined to Christ in such a way it brings forth fruit unto God. So we must see this image in order to be renewed by the image and according to the image. We must know this image. I want you to think what Paul says in Romans 8, 13 through 15. He's going to use the language of mortification. I want to tie some, connect some dots here. He would say, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. If you live after the old man, you'll die physically and eternally. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you'll live. Colossians 3, mortifications of the members upon earth. Romans 8, mortification of the deeds of the body, because the deeds are rooted in the old man's desires. Then he says this, interestingly, because you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry Abba, Father. The spirit of fear is is the domination of fear that puts us in slavery. What is that fear? Well, the Roman gods which he's writing to the Roman Christian, were capricious gods. They were unpredictable. They were moody guys. And so any change that took place in the Roman people was owing to fear. Fear Fear-based mortification. You better get that sacrifice up to the temple. He's going to do something. That capricious God is going to hurt me. He's going to take something away from me that I love. He won't give me what I've been asking for. Fear-based mortification. You have not been given the spirit of fear. Because fear-based mortification ultimately is selfishness. How is that? Because if we're afraid of consequences, we're afraid of the consequences that affect me. And therefore, in the end, all fear-based change and mortification is self-centeredness. Because all I can think about is what he's going to do to me. What he's going to take from me. That was what we see in Cain's life in Genesis chapter 4. Said, I can't bear this punishment. What are people going to do to me? They're going to kill me. They're going to come after me. Poor little Cain. is just as self-centered as he was before he killed his brother Abel. Because fear-based mortification does not produce any change at the heart level. It doesn't kill the power of affection. And that's our problem. We need a love-based mortification. We need to see the image of Christ in such a way That it produces a kind of mortification. It's not just trying to avoid consequences. If you do that, you'll just live in such a way that that never happens again. But you've done nothing to kill the old man. What is this image that we look at? You've been given the spirit of adoption. You have no right to be in the family of God. You're a bastard and not a son by nature. You have no right whatsoever. And His love comes and rescues you and brings you into a family to experience His redemptive love that breaks the power of canceled sin because you're delighted with the love of God because you see the great cost of that love was the Lamb slain on your behalf. That will give you the power to hate sin because fear-based mortification never causes you to hate it. You just hate the consequences. I don't want that to happen anymore, but you're not hating sin. Until you see the image of Christ and the love of God in the cross, His love becomes our delight. And it breaks the attractive allurement to old man's sin. Take the prodigal son in closing. And I am closing. He goes and riotous living. Comes himself feeding swine in a field. Gets back home. Somebody says, What's going to make the difference this time? How are you going to change this time? I don't want to go back to that again. I was bankrupt. All my friends left me. You ever fed swine? I mean, those things can be pretty unruly. I thought at one time they were going to attack me and take my life. I'll never go back to doing that again. What would you do different? Well, this time I'll put some money aside before I go party. I mean, I'll set a bank account first so I don't bankrupt. And then I'll make sure the friends are, are my friends because they, they like me and not just my money. And then I'll do whatever it can, I, I can to avoid consequences. What happened? He doesn't hate sin. He just hates feeding swine. So he does whatever it takes to change his life, all externally, and not go back to feeding swine. I'm just going to be more moderate, more reasonable. When I drink and party, I'm just going to you know, be even killed. I don't want to go back there. What happens? In my father's house, even the lowly servants have enough bread to spare. I'll go back and say, Father, I'm not worthy to be called thy son. And that's right. Adopted sons have no value. They've all sinned. You have no right to be called a son of God. I'll just say, hey, I think I'll work for you. You can't work for God. That's a belittling of his sufficiency. All world religions are wrong because they think they can work their way to purity, which is an abomination to God. Christ has done the work. You just rest in Him alone and that's it. So He comes back, the Father embraces Him, kills a fatted calf, puts a ring on a finger, robe on His back, and Mary makes in the house. Now what is the power that's going to break canceled sin? It's not the fear of consequences. It's the love of fellowship in the Father's house that breaks the allurement of the sin. It's putting on the new man, seeing the new man, seeing his love, seeing all the facets of Christ that does it. Somebody asked the prodigal son, what's going to keep you from doing it next time? Are you kidding me? It's my Father's love that's so supreme. I hate what I did. I don't want to ever do it again. And I commit to putting it to death. It's love. You've been made a child of God by love. So let us put to death sinful anger, sensuality, sinful prejudice, covetousness, which is idolatry, by asking the questions that probe our hearts and then going to the love of God. Now something interesting in verse 10, it says, put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Scholars say the preposition ice before knowledge, which is a sign, deeper riches in knowledge, cannot be the means of renewal. What does that mean? It means you've got to start putting on the image before you go deeper in His love. What is the image? Holiness. Somebody says, I don't get everything out of preaching like I used to. It seems my experience is kind of dry. I don't feel the joy when I sing the songs of Zion. Are you being holy? That's the reason. The deeper, fuller, richer knowledge... Is not the means of renewal, it is the result. So we see His love and we know Him, but then we go deeper after we start putting on holiness, not before. That's why sometimes we get dry, we don't go deeper, we're not ravished by the love of God because something else is ravishing our hearts to the point where I don't have time for holiness, I don't have time for service, I don't have time to put on Christ. Be ye holy for I am holy, the result is deeper, fuller, richer experience in the love of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your rich word to us. We are ravished by your love. We're enthralled with it. But we know, Lord, at times we become cold because of the idols of our hearts. We struggle with sensuality, lustful thoughts. We struggle With sinful anger, we struggle with prejudices still. But Lord, through Christ Jesus and being joined to you, we can put all these sins to death by being renewed in your image, by seeing your love and the cost of your love and delighting in it by the Holy Spirit and by putting on holiness as the world sees a holy people made holy by the blood of Christ and then pursuing holiness out of the great love for which You loved us. Lord, make that to be a greater reality in our hearts and lives. Today, tomorrow, throughout this next week. May You be glorified as we trust the world would see a crucified band of soldiers who have nothing in common, who before hated each other, who before were greatly prejudiced, but now in Christ He is all and in all to the glory of God the Father. In Christ's name we pray.